0: Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we welcome Dr. Stephen Hussey.
1: When you look at certain nutrients that come almost exclusively from our meat and, and red meat whether it be pork or or, um, red meat specifically, there's nutrients in there that are extremely good for the heart, like carnitine, creatine, carnosine, taurine, all these nutrients that, you know, you can try and get them from plants, but good luck. You know, you need to get enough, you're gonna need to eat animal foods. So why would a food that has so many beneficial nutrients to the heart also be killing the heart? That doesn't make sense.
0: I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, host of the Keto Camp Podcast, best-selling author of KetoFlex. You can learn more about me over at BenAzadi.com. For the first time on the Keto Camp Podcast, we bring on Dr. Stephen Hussey. He is the author of the most recent book, Understanding the Heart, Uncommon Insights into Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ. You're going to hear about a story of being a teenager, getting blood work done, and seeing that his A1C was 11.2. He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and he saw firsthand the awful advice his conventional doctors gave him, which raised a lot of questions, which led him into the path of functional health. His book is an outstanding book, which talks about the beginning of life, the history of the mitochondria, which we'll get into. We'll get into the autonomic nervous system, how it's different between reptiles and mammals. An interesting study on red meat And living in big cities versus rural areas, we talk about the China study and why that is a flawed book. We discuss the role of vegetable oils and heart disease, mitochondria, how to to enhance the mitochondria, why getting sun on a daily basis will help your heart function better. We talk about his three big keys for staying healthy and living a long, healthy life. I'm going to share them real quick right now, but he'll go deeper in the episode. Staying metabolically flexible and healthy, reducing oxidative stress and inflammation, and balancing your autonomic nervous system. We're going to get into the red light therapy benefits of the heart, how statins interfere with the process of making cholesterol the best lab markers to assess your risk of heart disease, and his unique viewpoint on why the heart is not the main mover of blood In the body. We also discussed the role of ketones and fat, fatty acids on heart cells and fat cells, and much, much more. You are going to love. Steven. I can't wait to bring him on the show. Before I do, I want to say thank you for pressing play again on the Keto Camp Podcast. You helped us hit over a million downloads and and we hit top 15 in the alternative health space. So thank you so much. Keep pressing play. Keep sharing this with your friends and family. Let's keep changing lives. And if you haven't left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet on Apple Podcasts, please do so right now. Did you know there's actually beverages that can supercharge your fasting results? My favorite, which is a keto powerhouse, is apple cider vinegar. There's a ton of research showing apple cider vinegar has been beneficial for boosting your metabolism, suppressing appetite, reducing fat storage. That's because apple cider vinegar contains acetic acid, which is a short chain fatty acid that's been shown to promote weight loss in those ways. Also, apple cider vinegar is one of the best ways to balance your blood sugars. A study showed apple cider vinegar improved insulin sensitivity after high-carb meals up to 34%. We also know that apple cider vinegar stimulates digestion, acts as a bile stimulant to help break down the fat you're eating on keto. Another research study showed apple cider vinegar protects against mineral depletion. If you're like me, you probably don't like the taste of apple cider vinegar. I think it tastes disgusting. That's why my go-to is Paleo Valley's Apple Cider Vinegar Complex. This is an organic blend of apple cider vinegar and four more gut and health supportive superfoods. I take this before my meals. I take it before coffee, and this enhances my fast and my blood sugar regulation. You'll find it contains organic apple cider vinegar, organic turmeric, organic ginger, organic Ceylon cinnamon, and organic lemon. Since you are a listener of the Keto Camp podcast, we worked out an exclusive discount code for you to get the apple cider vinegar complex capsules and all of the products over at Paleo Valley. All you need to do is head to paleovalley.com and use the coupon code Keto Camp15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. By the way, they got delicious beef sticks and an awesome organ meat complex. Go check them out. PaleoValley.com, that is KetoCamp15 at checkout. We'll also drop a link down below in the show notes. Okay, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Stephen Hussey. Dr. Stephen Hussey, MSDC, is a chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner, He attained both his doctorate of chiropractic and master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland. Dr. Stephen is the author of two books on health. His first book, The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health, and his most recent book, which we're going to talk about mostly today, The Heart, Our Most Medically Misunderstood organ, uncommon insights into our most commonly diagnosed organ. Dr. Stephen Hussey guides clients or health participants, as he likes to call them, from around the world to health by using the latest research and health-attaining strategies. In his downtime, he likes to be outdoors, playing sports, reading, writing, and spending time with his wife and their pets. Here is Dr. Stephen Hussey. Stephen Hussey, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: I was just telling you offline that uh, I enjoyed your book very much. Uh, we're going to put a, a link for it in the notes of the podcast. It's called Understanding the Heart, Uncommon Insights into Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ. And how true is that? I mean, we're going to bust a lot of myths today, get into a, a great conversation about the heart and heart disease in, in general. Before we get to that, let's let's um, go back in time a little bit. You were a teenager. You were in high school and yeah, got your A1C levels tested, and it was 11.2.
1: What led up to that point? What changed after that? Um, well, immediately after that, probably not too much changed. At that point, I was, you know, I guess a typical rebellious teenager, and, uh, you know, my parents were concerned about me, obviously, and my health, and so they were just all over me about, you know, controlling blood sugars, and I just couldn't see the future, you know? I couldn't see what what that would cause down the line. But you know, when I got into college, I, I, I had a really good relationship with my pediatric endocrinologist. Um, looking back, I don't necessarily agree with everything that he recommended, but he was a great person. Uh, and he really helped me understand the disease. And and so that kind of inspired me to want to be some sort of, you know, medical practitioner. And so when I started learning about that stuff in college, I also started realizing that, you know, the way I live my life and lifestyle had a direct impact on my ability to manage type 1 diabetes. But also all the inflammatory conditions I had as a child, whether it was asthma or allergies or chronic hives or IBS, all this kind of stuff, and all that stuff's pretty much gone now. So I started to see this correlation with, you know, you know, direct, you know, feedback into how I live my life and affecting my ability to manage these things. And I found it curious that none of my doctors had ever really told me that, that you could make changes like that. It was always just, you know, eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, just give yourself more insulin if you need it.
0: And Biss, about that point, I remember you sharing about a chart they gave you with just like the
1: carbohydrates in fast food, right? Yeah, it was a book, a whole book actually, that just listed pretty much every item on a fast food menu of any fast food restaurant and how many carbs went it. because that was the whole thing. You counted carbohydrates and you gave insulin for your carbohydrates. That's how you manage the condition according to them. Uh, And so that's what I did for a long time, um, unsuccessfully a lot of times. But yeah, so when I started to realize that it was a lot of trial and error, I was figuring out stuff on my own. But I was also starting to get educated on, you know, these things I I majored in health and wellness in college, um, and then went on to chiropractic school, and then a master's in human nutrition. And so all that stuff was was great. And it gave me a great baseline. But what I've learned since then uh, surpasses that even. And, uh, and it's just been this never ending kind of uh, journey into how I can best manage these things.
0: Yeah, very fascinating. Uh, it's 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 so sad that they were just focusing on one macronutrient. Yet you could have all the vegetable oils and inflammatory fats. Like what about that? How is that contributing to your type one diabetes? Uh, so you went to school for um, health and wellness. You became a chiropractor. I have a big uh, love for chiropractors. I work with a lot of them on my, on my team. I work with uh, my mentor, Dr. Daniel Pompa, who is a chiropractor. And uh, I love the philosophy of, of chiropractors because the philosophy is um, identify interference, remove interference, allow the body to heal. And I truly believe we have this innate intelligence within us that is designed to help us heal. And you decided after several years of research to, to write a book about the heart and your book is very different than other books written about the heart, but why did you decide to focus on the heart?
1: Yeah, I just, um, you know, throughout my childhood and and then college and becoming an adult, like I would always go to endocrinologists and and I just remember seeing all over the walls of the clinics, all these posters that say, you know, diabetics are two to four times increased risk of heart disease and, you know, going blind and amputations and all this stuff. And, every time I'd ask my doctors, you know, why that was, they would just say, oh, because higher blood sugars over time will, you know, lead to glycation issues and, and damage and then damage the arteries and the small arteries are the ones that get damaged first. And so I was like, oh man, cardiovascular disease. Like um, when I started getting into health, I was like, that's, that's got to be my focus because that's what I'm predisposed to heavily. And, uh, and so I just started trying to learn as much as I could. Every time I heard about heart disease, I you know, my ears would perk up and I'd soak it in and Eventually, started doing my own research um, and found a lot of things that you know I had been told that were wrong, and it was just kind of like my personal journey. And then, you know, I guess about three years ago now, or maybe maybe even four years ago now, I started sharing some of my findings about the heart uh, on social media and stuff, and and people seemed to like it. And so I decided to put it all down in in one place and in this book, and and uh, and here it is. I'm glad that you
0: did. So are so many other people out there. You, you talk about about a lot of different things in the book, but you went into the the history of the beginning of life, <laughs> the history of the mitochondria, the history of the autonomic, autonomic nervous system. Let's let's start there. Uh, what did you discover when you were looking at the beginning of life?
1: Yeah, and I think that you know the overarching thing here is that like this is a book about heart disease and the heart and understanding the heart. But in reality, it's a book about health, you know, any, any of these things, all these imbalances I talk about with heart disease are the same things that cause other diseases. So all this applies to pretty much, pretty much um, uh, the body in general and health in general. But yeah, so I came across this interesting theory by a guy named Jeremy England at MIT, I believe. And basically, he just describes that, you know, in the beginning, when it was just this primordial soup, and it was just the earth was absorbing energy from the sun. And eventually that energy got to be so much that you know, the the small little primordial soup These just, you know, these molecules of things started to combine themselves into, you know, the first living things, you know, little bacteria and things like that. It, and uh, probionts, that's what they're called. And so eventually that's kind of started life. And life just started, you know, growing into more complex organisms over time. And that was because life was getting more efficient at absorbing and i guess harvesting energy from the environment and storing it so basically it was helping the earth store energy because the earth is constantly getting this supply of energy and it needed something to do with it that's his theory as to why life i guess came about you know because the earth needed some way of storing energy so that's what we are we're energy storing things so our trees so our insects uh, they're all just ways of storing energy in a transient fashion you know and so Eventually, though, early on in life, there was you know different bacteria. Some were good at using carbon dioxide. Some were better at using oxygen. And so, when oxygen started becoming to the atmosphere, when photosynthesis started happening, two of these bacteria kind of teamed up. And uh, one of them was a, is a was a bacteria that was it wasn't so good at you know harvesting oxygen from the environment. The other one was, uh, and using the oxygen to make energy. And so, the theory goes that the one that was got kind of engulfed in this other bacteria. And now it was doing a a job for that bacteria, and that was, you know, able to use oxygen to make ATP, um, so that that cell could could focus on doing other things like becoming multicellular and doing other cellular functions. And so we now know those bacteria that are good at using oxygen to make ATP that the other bacteria engulf. We now know them as mitochondria, and mitochondria do have a lot of characteristics, I guess, uh, that suggest they used to be independent uh, living beings themselves being at a, a double mitochondrial membrane or even uh, the fact that there's, they've even found mitochondria on their own in the human body, like by themselves um, outside the cells. So they can you know, be on their own. And so it was this relationship that kind of, I guess, stood the test of time because it's still present in us today. But it's really relevant to the heart because the heart's metabolism is very, very important. And the heart tissue is some of the most mitochondrial dense tissue in the body. Um, so it's really important that the mitochondria are functioning properly.
0: How, do you know how many mitochondria, on average, are in a, a single heart cell? I do not. Yeah, I know. I know it's up there because it's one of the most metabolically demanding um, cells, along with the brain cells and the eyeballs. And you know what I discovered, Stephen? The highest concentration of mitochondria in a single cell is actually in the in the ovaries and uh, 100,000 mitochondria in a single cell, which makes a lot of sense to me because everything we're talking about when it comes to the mitochondria, survival, right? Eyeballs, looking around, surviving, the heart, of course you need your heart to to to, to live, uh, and then reproduction with the ovaries. So it's super fascinating the way that we were designed. It's really, really magnificent. So the mitochondria, let's talk about that in, in relation to disease, heart disease. Heart disease is it number two of the number in terms of deaths in the U.S. Is it number
1: two after cancer? Uh, I, I think it goes back and forth. You know, sometimes yeah. it's heart disease, sometimes cancer. They're very close, but I think heart disease is first if you include like all the diseases of heart disease, like atherosclerosis, heart failure, heart attacks, all those different ones. Yeah. So it's one or two. It's
0: flopping back and forth. It's very high. It's off the charts. To your point about diabetes, most people who die from diabetes are not actually dying from diabetes. They're dying from the degeneration of it, the heart attacks, the strokes, kidney failure, et cetera. What role does the the mitochondria, or I should say
1: impaired mitochondria play with these diseases? Yeah, so specifically in the heart, um, it seems to have, and, and most organs in general in the body seem to have this preference for burning fatty acids and ketones for fuel. And there's really interesting studies specifically on on heart tissue that show that, like even in the presence of glucose, the heart still chooses to burn ketones and fatty acids if they're available. And I think there's mechanisms in place that you know kind of give the heart first dibs on fatty acids and ensure that it has enough fatty acids and ketones around. And so it, to me, uh, that means that that it needs to be generating the most ATP possible because you get way more ATP burning fatty acids uh, and ketones than you do glucose. You can burn glucose pretty efficiently and fast, but you don't get as much energy from it.
0: Plus, less less uh, cellular smoke, if you will, toxins.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so you know, exhaust, so to speak. You know, burning fatty acids, you get less of that exhaust or, or free radicals, and so, and so that's very important because you know, if we get some lots of that exhaust, we start to get damage to the mitochondria, and when the mitochondria get damaged then uh, they, they can't function as well. They can't use oxygen as well as that causes them to go from oxidative phosphorylation to more of like a fermentation uh, kind of thing where they're kind of, they can't like, it's like, it's called aerobic fermentation where, you know, in the presence of oxygen, they choose to go to fermentation, even though it's present, but it's because the organs that allow them to use oxygen aren't operating properly, which is those mitochondria, they're, they're damaged. And so that can lead to a host, whole host of things, but it seems at the heart, has this kind of special protection from that situation. It can still happen though, unfortunately, and there's things I talk about in the book that lead to that, but it it, it seems that the the body's kind of put this, it put put that first, you know, so that the heart can keep functioning because obviously it's a pretty important organ. It's what delivers all our nutrients and everything, so to speak.
0: Yeah, so interesting. And it goes back to uh, Otto Warburg and his uh, metabolic theory of cancer. Now that we have Dr. Thomas Seyfried and others kind of carrying that work. The fermentation process, this um, in which we don't want, because that'll lead to disease. It'll lead to cancer. So uh, let's transition here. I talk a lot about, of course, keto. I love keto. I love going in and out of ketosis. I also love carnivore. Uh, I, I like using carnivore as a tool, short term, personally, and for my for my students. Red meat. Red meat. I mean, there's so many studies out there that are so conflicting. And you did you talked about in your book living in big cities versus rural areas and you kind of compare that to some of the red meat studies out there can you talk a little bit more about that
1: yeah particularly the the one that i talk about in the book is the china study which is that infamous one i say and yeah you know they did find you no know, these are all associations so they can't really tell us much of anything anyways they can just tell us that things are associated together they can't say that one thing caused the other but in this you know big study the china study which is kind of famous i guess in these circles they found that People who ate more red meat had higher incidences of heart disease. But when you look at the data, the people who ate more red meat were people who lived in cities in general. And so an association of study cannot flesh out the differences between someone who who lives in a city and lives in a rural area. And so, you know, if I think about cities, there's way more toxin exposure. It's way more, um, usually more stressful life, lifestyle. More high demand, you know. We got you know exec CEOs, busier life, things like that. And in, in the rural areas, it's, it's a little bit slower. All different kinds of things like that. I'd I think more processed food in a city. Uh, where in rural areas. You probably have access to more, you know, fresher, more more whole foods. And so all those differences can't be flushed out. So you can't say, okay, so there, it was the red meat that that caused the issue. And these these groups of people lived in totally different environments. And so that's one of my my biggest. I guess, critiques of, of studies like that and of the China study specifically is that it didn't account for that. And it just went based off that one association and then kind of made recommendations and, and went with it from there.
0: Yeah, which makes the, the book pretty much flawed. <laughs> if only they would have had that in asterisk or like have some sort of ca- caveat, like, by the way, you know, we were not sure because we did didn't separate the rural versus the big cities. By the way, the China study duped me back in and. 2012, 2013, I became a vegan for a year and a half because I read that book before I knew how to understand studies. So what what are your thoughts on, on red meat?
1: I think it's one, if not the best, one of the best foods for human beings. I think that it is, it's a food that is some of the most nutrient-dense, most bioavailable, uh, meaning your body can absorb the nutrients in it very easily. It doesn't have to deal with anything bound to cellulose or any type of plant molecule that's interfering with absorption or anything like that. So it's, you it's know, in, in a world where we have a population that is extremely undernourished, as far as vitamins, minerals, uh, even protein, like that is probably the most important food for people to be getting when it comes to, you know, fixing this problem of, you know, overfed and undernourished um, that we have. Uh, and so it, to me, to to blame it or to, to say that we need to get rid of animal foods or get rid of of animal farming, we need to do better animal farming. But to get rid of it is just not an option, not for um, the health and, and future of humans, um, but also not for the health of the planet either. Like we need um, we need red meat, we need the animals that red meat comes from, and when it comes to heart disease, humans have been eating red meat uh, since the beginning of humans on since the first modern humans arrived. You know. So it makes no sense that you know it would be killing us because heart disease is a relatively, at least in the epidemic that we know of it as, it's only been around for 150 years or so. Like okay, we have evidence of heart disease much older than that, like in in ancient Egypt. But it's very well known that the Egyptians were very uh, a little very little red meat, and uh, they were a grain-based society. So yeah, like we see that the numbers skyrocket and we can't blame it on something that's been part of the human diet for millions of years when the disease rate skyrocketed in the last 150. That just doesn't make sense at all. And so that combined with the fact that when you look at certain nutrients that come almost exclusively from uh, meat and, and red meat, whether it be pork or, or um, red meat specifically, there's nutrients in there that are extremely good for the heart, like carnitine, creatine, carnosine, taurine, All these nutrients that, you know, you can try and get them from plants, but good luck. You know, you need to get enough, you're gonna need to eat animal foods. So why would a food that has so many beneficial nutrients to the heart also be killing the heart? That doesn't make sense.
0: Agreed. Agreed. And of course, we want quality, grass-fed, grass-finished, you know, regenerative farming. We want to support that. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil to apply a $4 off coupon. That is Ben, B-E-N, and the number four. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. The vegan movement is very strong nowadays. Uh, The marketing is really good. They get an A-plus in marketing, but uh, a poor grade in actual health. So I'm glad that you shared that because I've tested my lab work and I want to get into that. With you, I've tested a comprehensive lab work before 40 days of strict carnivore, just nothing but animal fat and protein and then 40 days after and it transformed my lab work, my inflammatory r- markers, my uh, hormones change in a positive way. So when we're looking at assessing our risk of heart disease, and we're looking at the ketogenic approach or carnivore approach that we're following. How do we actually get some lab markers done to verify? What are some of your go-to lab markers in perspective of heart disease?
1: Yeah. Um, so like when people, if they get my book and read it, they'll find that there's this three-pronged approach for me, and that is you know, metabolic health or metabolic flexibility and uh, low inflammation and oxidative stress and balance in our autonomic nervous system. And so those first two, metabolic flexibility and oxidative stress, um, you can assess fairly easily with, with blood work. And so, you know, the numbers that I like to use, you know, just kind of as a baseline thing are uh, the trig to HDL ratio. So you take that triglycerides divided by HDL um, and that should be 1.5 or lower ideally. Oh,
0: you say 1.5. I've been been going off of less than two. So you like 1.5 a little bit better.
1: Yeah, I like 1.5 or lower. And then the other one is the insulin resistance score, or just really the fasting insulin in general, because that, if that's, if you're a little bit insulin resistant or have poor metabolic health, that'll show up way before blood sugar will be elevated. So that's really important because someone could have high fasting insulin for 20 years before the blood sugar ever ends up abnormal. And so you know, most physicians are waiting for the blood sugar to end up abnormal before they can diagnose you with diabetes or prediabetes or something like that. And they never even looked at the fasting insulin. So it's important because if fasting insulin is elevated, then that means your body is having to use more insulin to keep your blood sugar normal, which means that you're insulin resistant. So you can you can see that way before it becomes you know pathologic, I'd say.
0: You like that in single digits fasting insulin?
1: Yeah. So I I usually say below ten is good, below five is great. Um, obviously, you don't want it like extremely too low, but like yeah, somewhere in there is it, pretty good. Um, But you can also, you know, take that number, multiply it by the blood sugar and divide it by four or five. And that gives you your insulin resistance score, which again, should be 1.5 or lower.
0: Say, say that again. So you take your fasting insulin and then multiply it by your what?
1: Your blood sugar, the fasting blood sugar. Fasting blood sugar. And divide it by four oh five.
0: Okay. Got it. I'm going to put that in the notes and then that's your insulin resistance score. Yeah. And what do you want that? Uh, 1.5 or lower. 1.5 or lower. That's great. So those listening, write that down and, and get that done. Do you put much emphasis on C-peptide to look at specifically the, the beta cells in the pancreas?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, you could just to see, you know, how much function there is there, you know, but I almost feel like that would be like, for that to be a normal one, you'd have to be in a real pathologic state, you know? So I want to I wanna detect things before it becomes a problem like that you know, because with my C-peptide, you know, it's like, they're just just—they're not working at all at this point, you know, um, they haven't been for a long time. Um, when I was first diagnosed, they were probably still working a little bit, my beta cells, but uh, but uh now they're not. Yeah, like, I, I like, I just like keep it as simple as possible too. like, hey, this is a number we got to fix. We don't need four other numbers that tell us the same thing. Let's fix these right here, we're going to be doing good. And then the other thing is inflammation, oxidative stress. And you can get like, you know, into the weeds with all the different n- numbers you could take on Bulberg that give you an idea of, you know, damage to tissues and, and things like that. But, you know, a good baseline inflammatory marker screening thing is just HSCRP, high sensitivity C reactive protein. So, but you could also do things like GGT. You could look at different markers that tell you about damage to certain fats in the body or damage to DNA uh, in the body, which could be a better assessment of like actual oxidative stress within cells. There's different things you could take, but like I said, do you really get into the weeds? You could spend a lot of money doing that kind of stuff. When when in reality, you could just do a few tests and see uh, those numbers, try and work to improve those. If you still don't feel better or get results or whatever, then maybe you could look deeper, but I, I would start there.
0: That's a great list. That's a great baseline. For uh, C-reactive protein, do you want to see that below one? What's your optimal range?
1: Um, I usually say below two is good. Below one is great, yeah.
0: Okay. When I first did my carnivore, one of the markers was the high sensitivity C-reactive protein. And it was 1.1 on day one. Uh, I was already doing keto. I had been doing keto for years. And then I did 40 days of carnivore and it dropped down to 0.5. So that kind of flies in the face of conventional wisdom that says eating more animal fat, saturated fat, cholesterol is going to increase your chances of, of heart disease. I saw the exact opposite.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and I see that all the time with clients and stuff. Uh, And myself too, you know, when I've done carnivore diets, it's like 0.2 or something like that, which is good for me, great for me because I have type one. So my blood sugars are going to be higher. They're going to be causing glycation stuff. So yeah, I'm, you know, really pleased with that. But the other thing about blood work to remember is that, you know, these are good, like, I guess, uh, guidance tools, but they're not the end all be all. And I think that, you know, the perfect lesson is like a carnivore diet or is like a, even a ketogenic diet where someone's like, you know, what, what Dave Feldman calls lean mass hyper responders, like, you know, sometimes things can, markers can go elevated or something like that. But if we take that in the context of everything else that's going on with the person, with the rest of the blood work, then we see that, you know, maybe this is a good thing. And just because our normal ranges that the lab gives us on the side, this is a normal range, says this, and we're out of that range, but we feel amazing. We feel the healthiest we felt in 10 years. Like, what are we going to believe? Is the blood work going to tell us we're unhealthy? Or is the way we feel going to tell us, you know, how how our health is, you know? And so that's not to say ignore blood work; it's a tool that we should use. But I do think that it's a bit short-sighted to just focus on that, uh, to live and die by it, too.
0: No, well said. I agree. Uh, you know, speaking of which, my LDL went through the roof. When I did a carnivore, but all all the other things improved. So if we look at it from that picture, and I felt great, by the way, I wasn't worried about the LDL. And I want to talk more about that. Uh, I know that there's LDL total LDL doesn't really mean much. Uh, I did the NMR profile to kind of look at the particle sizes. But do you put any emphasis on the LDL? Is that just one little piece to the puzzle when you're looking at the lab work?
1: Yeah, that's just one little piece of things, and and I haven't seen anything that uh, has convinced me or even made me question uh, whether or not ldl could cause atherosclerosis on its own like it, it there's i don't think there's any way that it could it always has to have other things happening in the body before it can contribute to that but even then it doesn't cause it it's just this this innocent bystander that the body uses to help repair that situation but yeah so just looking at one marker ldl and saying like i think this, it's just it's really short-sighted to think to look at this one blood marker which blood is only one tissue in the body it's a very small you know sample of what's going on in the body it's also just one marker in it and to think that this one thing's going to cause disease is really short-sighted and you know disease is multifactorial any disease is and so to be focused on that to be to fearful of that number um, without looking at it in the context of everything going on in the person's life and the rest of blood work and other testing it just doesn't make sense to me and unfortunately you know there's a whole you know uh, aspect of medicine uh, that's so focused on that number, and I think that it has really um, done a disservice to a lot of people.
0: I agree. I see it all the time with my like YouTube comments. Oh, my doctor looked at my LDL and it was X Y Z. Wants wants to put me on a statin. Even worse than that, they don't even look at the LDL. They just look at total cholesterol, and they're like, you got to go on a statin. Is there any? Re- I've never seen it. I don't know if you have. Is there any research that shows total cholesterol really
1: means anything when it comes to heart disease? Not that I've seen, no. But interestingly, you know the levels. Uh, like if we talk about LDL specifically, they want it to be lower than 100. That's what the recommendation is nowadays. But it started out like 250 was fine. Then then they wanted it lower than 200. Then lower than 150. And now it's lower than 100. Is, is what the recommendation is. And so to me that tells me that we really don't know what it's supposed to be. But interestingly, there was a study came out not too long ago that looked at uh, looked at a lot of different things. One of the things they looked at was LDL. And I wish they looked at total cholesterol too, but they didn't in the study. They looked at LDL and HDL and and other things. But the LDL, they looked at that and how it associated with all-cause mortality. Um, So dying from anything pretty much. And it's just an associational study. So we can't say it proves anything. But the the levels of LDL that associated with the lowest uh, death from anything uh, were between like 117 and 160. And so the recommendation is to have it below 100 and the level of LDL that associated with the highest all-cause mortality was lower than 84. So it's interesting to see that, you know, considering that the idea that we need to lower cholesterol is based on studies that show that association, to show associations that higher cholesterol is, is worse for heart disease. We have other studies that show these associations that higher is is better for not dying from anything, you know. So just conflicting things. So when that kind of stuff happens, you just kind of have to throw it all out, or just take it into consideration. But you can't draw conclusions from that. We can't move forward with treatment strategies with that information.
0: What about the role of statin? So let's say somebody's listening right now and they're taking a statin. They want to get off of it. Can you just describe how statins interfere with the process of actually making cholesterol in some of those pathways, and what can the person do to get off the statins?
1: Yeah, so the statins work by inhibiting the production of cholesterol. and there's like this twenty step process of so to making the taking fatty acids and making cholesterol. And statins interfere with like the second step, uh, so very early on in the process. And the problem with that is that, well, first of all, you don't get cholesterol in the end, so everybody doesn't make cholesterol, which is important for lots of different things. But the other issue is is that your body uses some of those intermediates, like those different steps, those molecules in those different steps for lots of other things, like it uses it um, to actually prevent vascular calcification, Uh, uses, uh, I think it's Farnase P P A, And I think uh, also it uses it to make selenoproteins, which are like precursors to antioxidants. So there's always different things. It uses one of the the molecules to make uh, another molecule called dollycol, which is really important for the health of our insulin receptors. So if we don't make that, which is statins, you know, prevent the making of that. That's why statins have been shown to to increase risk for type two diabetes, because we get unhealthy insulin receptors, we get insulin resistance. Yeah, so there's all these things that it's interfering with, and that's why we get this this long downstream effect of side effects from from statins. And so, getting off of them, first of all, you know, if people want to get off their statins. Go talk to your doctor. You know, give them information and say, hey, I'd like to get off of this, and see what they say. If they're not willing to help you get off of it, then maybe it's time to find a new doctor. But you have to do that through them. But yeah, I mean, the goal should never to be dependent to make someone dependent on a medication. You know, so if your doctor is saying that, you know, oh, you have high cholesterol, it's probably genetic, you need to take this drug the rest of your life, that's not good healthcare, in my opinion. Um, First of all, if the patient wants to do that, then then fine. Um, but also you should be educating the patient on the, all the different things. That's, it's called like, you know, when you give someone a treatment, you kind of have to give them the risks, You have to give them the alternative treatments. You have to give them all, all this information, and it's just very rarely done. Like most of the time because they don't know lots of the risks or the alternatives. You know, they don't know how to lower cholesterol if, if that's something that's desired. They don't know how to do that other than a statin drug. And so this this whole bit of information that's supposed to be given to patients is, is not necessarily happening. And so patients think they have one option and they have to do that. And and if they don't, they're gonna have a heart attack. And so now they're living in fear, and it's kind of like this not necessarily guilt, but just this fear-based agreement to to the treatment, you know, when there's lots of different, well, lots of different opinions about if we want to actually lower cholesterol or not, but then also lots of other ways that if you wanted to lower your cholesterol, you could. Uh, if that was what you desired.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you would say instead of focusing on lowering cholesterol, focus on lowering inflammation. Is that an accurate thing you would, meant, you would recommend?
1: Definitely. I would, I would. if I had a choice between, you know, what thing to treat, would it be the LDL, the insulin resistance, the inflammation, insulin resistance would come first, treat that first. Because likely when you treat that, the inflammation is going to go away too. Um, but if you inflammation is still there, there's other reasons for that, then you treat that. And if you treat those two things first, uh, I don't think it really matters too much what your LDL is. It's, It's there doing its job. And the only reason that it becomes problematic is because of things like insulin resistance and inflammation that cause damage to the LDL molecules, those lipoproteins, because once they're damaged, then they can become problematic as well. But it wasn't it's not them. It's not their fault. It's the things that damage them that's causing the issue. And that's the things that cause inflammation. Um, So things like stress, toxin exposure, poor metabolic health, that kind of stuff. But I do think, and this is kind of a theory, I don't, you know, I'll say that up front. Like, I do think that, say someone had really high cholesterol, like total cholesterol, or even, or LDL, and they were also in a very inflamed state, let's say they smoked and drank or lived an extremely stressful lifestyle. In that sense, I think having higher LDL might be bad because when you're in that state, those things are damaging the LDL and those and the damaged LDL particles are also damaging other things, like a chain reaction, you know. So having more of them around could just lead to this whole crazy situation where the body's the tissues just getting damaged. But in the absence of that, there's even some things that suggest that higher LDL could be beneficial. So it's all in the context of the health of the human. So if you're, taking just, if you're just looking at LDL, you're missing, missing the boat.
0: Yeah, so important. I, I always say that. It's, such, it's, it's a full picture you want to look at. It's all of those inflammatory markers, how you feel. Total LDL, yeah, whatever. But HDL, triglyceride, get the ratio, do the calculations that you mentioned, and then you can make a decision. Is this a problem or is it fine? I mean, I knew for me, even though I had really high LDL, after the 40, even before the 40 days of carnivore, I had high LDL, but even higher after that, but all my inflammatory markers were optimal. My A1C was optimal, my fasting insulin was optimal, my HOMA-IR oh, my was optimal. It's like, okay, I'm good with this, I feel good. And that's the full picture we wanna look at. If you're anything like me, you probably spend some money each month on your supplements. But what if you're still tired and you just don't feel 100% well? Well, there could be a deficiency. What if there was a way to know if you were actually absorbing your supplementation or not absorbing, and maybe you're taking too much of something. Well, what I'm bringing you today is a chance to accurately test all of that. In this case, I'm talking about upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test kit, and consultation. And once you uncover these hidden deficiencies, you could get rid of these symptoms you might be experiencing that might be affecting your thyroid, adrenals, or much more. Upgraded formulas is a very cool company. I interviewed Barton Scott Who is the founder and chemical engineer who helps craft all their supplements and they have this really cool upgraded mineral deficiency analysis so say goodbye to blood and urine tests which typically indicate short-term results hair is the best identifier and you could get that hair from your head armpit area or even pubic area and you'll receive a consultation with a member of upgraded formulas to help discuss your results and it's very simple. Collect your hair sample, send it in, and get your results fast. We've worked out an exclusive deal, Keto Camp Podcast listeners, to receive 10% off your order. Head to UpgradedFormulas.com. Use the coupon code BEN10 at checkout to get your hair mineral kit and any other supplements that you could find on their website. That is UpgradedFormulas.com. Use the coupon code BEN10. Real quick on the topic of statins and even those who are not taking statins, what about CoQ10? Do you recommend somebody who takes statins take CoQ10 or what about somebody who doesn't take statins? What role does CoQ10 play with heart health?
1: Yes, CoQ10 is super important because it it, it boils down to that mitochondria like we talked about uh, in the beginning, uh, CoQ10 is really important for uh, the functioning of the mitochondria, and like the last one of the last steps of it, where it's it's transporting those those um, electrons down this chain to make the ATP at the end. It's really important in one of those those mechanisms there. And so, yeah, I, I think it's it's important to be taking that, you know, or at least getting it through your diet, regardless of if you're on a statin or not. I think that's that's incredibly important. But um, I guess especially if you're on a statin, you know, you want to be increasing the health of the mitochondria uh, regardless of that that's that's the key thing and then ask yourself like is the problem the cholesterol that i'm lowering or is the problem that my i don't have enough coq10 like so what, why am i taking this one thing especially because i'm on a statin or was that the problem in the first place you know it's kind of backwards thinking you know does that make sense
0: yeah it makes sense so how do you get it from diet if you don't supplement with it what what foods have it
1: uh, I mean, red meat's a good source. I'd say liver is a really good source um, if you do want to do organ meats, but you could also supplement you know, freeze-dried organ meats You know, make sure you get a good brand. There's plenty of people doing that now. But like I said, you know, those foods, very nutrient-dense, very bioavailable forms of these nutrients that you're going to absorb way more readily than in any supplement form.
0: Your book... I learned a lot of things that were new, but one of the things that I learned was that the heart is actually not the main mover of blood in the body. And you have a different explanation of the heart. So can you explain that and just go into depth on the physical heart and how it actually works in the body?
1: Yeah, so most people think, and medical students are taught, I was taught that you know the heart is this forcefully pumping organ that that pumps the blood throughout the entire body. And yes, there's, there's help from the contraction of muscles, And there's one-way valves in the veins that keep the blood going in the direction that we want it to. But when you look at the physics of it, there's actually no way that a heart the size of ours could pump blood throughout the entire body with enough force to get it all the way back to the heart. I mean, if you think about it, if I was going to pump water up a hill, where would I put the pump? at the bottom of the hill, so I could pump water up the hill, right? I wouldn't put the pump at the top of the hill, have the water come down the hill so I could pump it back up the other side, right? And so it makes no sense that the heart is forcefully moving blood, especially in the veins, because that's the water coming back up the hill after it's gone down the hill, you know? And so we have to look at this in a different, um, in a different light. And so there's actually um, quite a bit of evidence that, like early evidence that blood can move on its own. There's really interesting studies uh, in the '40s, and then repeated in the '60s, that showed that when they stopped the the hearts of dogs sorry for all the animal lovers but when they when they did that uh, and they inject tracers into the blood and they accounted for like the the ventilation of the um, uh, the lungs and everything that the blood still moved despite the dog's heart stopped not breathing anything like that the blood still moved for up to two hours after the dog had died, and so people you know, will say, well, how is that possible? How does the blood keep moving? Especially if the heart's not contracting and the valves aren't opening, and this, how is this happening? And it's happening because water, which our blood is about half water, has these unique properties that it can absorb energy from the environment. And it can do that from lots of different energy sources. But the number one way that it, or the number one frequency or wavelength of energy that it can absorb is... Um, infrared light which the natural source of that is from the sun Um, like 40 percent of the sun is is infrared and so when it has a sufficient energy water will do these very unique things when it gets next to water loving surfaces um so it will actually start to structure itself and by structure i mean like it uh it kind of just like you know we have three phases of water solid liquid gas there's actually kind of a fourth phase which we've called structured water or exclusion zone water or Fourth phase water, and it it's kind of like between solid and liquid. It's kind of like gel. Think like Jello, or like gelatin. Um, when you you know refrigerate your bone broth, it turns like in this gelatin state. It's that kind of consistency. And so this actually happens. and This has been proven at a lab at University of Washington. That actually happens on the lining of our blood vessels. So again, the the blood is about half water. So if our bodies are you know, sufficiently energized, when it gets next to the hydrophilic surface of the lining of an artery, it actually structures itself. And the way that it structures itself without getting into all the details, it actually creates an energy gradient because of how the the ions position themselves when, when the structuring happens. And this energy gradient drives flow. And it's been shown that that this can happen indefinitely as long as energy is applied to the system. And so that's how uh, the the main way the blood moves uh, is kind of on its own. It's kind of the self-propelled mechanism because of these unique characteristics of water. And so, when we think about it in that aspect, that the blood is moving on its own, we have to think about the heart as something. Well, first of all, like, why is it there? You know, what is it doing then if it's not you know forcefully pumping blood? And so, we have to think about something else that you know, that we know of that is it, sort of like a pump but it's flow-based you know, or it's flow-operated, meaning water or liquid is flowing into it. And that's the only time that it really operates is when water is flowing into it. And so the thing we know of in engineering for that is, is a hydraulic ram or hydraulic ram pump. And so this, this operates when water is flowing from a higher place, like a reservoir coming down into the hydraulic ram. And when it does that, it, it does these mechanisms using physics to get the, the liquid in there and then pumped up somewhere else or moved somewhere else. And in reality, the heart, um, it does do a little bit of pumping when it contracts, but no more than is enough to get this, the blood kind of moved through the heart. There's no way that it could, you know, pump it all the way around the body. But it's interesting then to think about, you know, so why is the heart there? And the first reason is, is that there's a few different ways that you can, you know, increase the energy that water is is uh, absorbs, And one of them is, like I said, infrared light. You also do grounding, but another one is—is is actually, it's been shown that when you we spiral water, like you vortex it, uh, in the presence of oxygen, it actually energizes it. And so, it's no accident that the heart is oriented. The muscles of the heart are oriented in a spiral, twisting like fashion. When the heart contracts, it it spirals like this, not just contracting like that. It's it's spiraling. And so, there's multiple places uh, as the blood moves through the heart that it gets actually vortex. And there's always oxygen present, even in the veins. There's still lots of oxygen uh, in that blood, uh, and it's more oxygenated when when it goes through the lungs and comes back to the heart. Um, but then it's getting spiraled every time it goes through in the presence of oxygen, so that keeps it energized um, to an extent. So when it gets back into the arteries, it can structure itself on the lining of the artery and then continue uh, keeping the blood moving. So in a way, the heart is responsible for you know moving the moving the blood, just not in the way we thought. And then the other really key purpose of the heart is has to do with why it's situated where it is. Why is it right in the middle of the arteries and the veins? Because if we were to... So like increased blood flow happens when tissues demand the blood. Um, so if we go for a run, tissues are demanding blood and it, and it starts surging toward the tissues in the arteries going towards the tissues. And if we were to go for a run and we didn't have a heart there, then all the blood would surge over to the arterial side of things. To the tissues, and the venous side wouldn't have enough pressure; wouldn't have enough uh, fluid in there to, to stay open, so it would collapse. However, the heart is actually there, kind of as a stopgap, maintaining the pressure between the two systems, making sure there's enough fluid in in both sides so that the venous side doesn't collapse when we're exercising, which is really, really important because if it did, we we would die. And so, in that sense, it's the heart is not necessarily this. It's not this thing that we think of like a pressure propulsion pump where it takes stagnant water from somewhere, sucks it in and then forcefully pumps it out another way. Fluid is already flowing into it. And it's actually in times where the fluid is flowing very fast, it's one of its roles is to actually slow it down. It's, uh, it's kind of damming it up a little bit so that we don't lose you know the even pressure between the two systems. Because uh, like I said, if we did, it'd be a disaster.
0: Mm, so fascinating. Yeah, we're not taught that. <laughs> we yeah. haven't been taught that at all. So I, I love that, that, that viewpoint on it. And, and your book goes a little bit deeper if you want to really understand it. I recommend getting the book. So the sun, you mentioned the sun. I'm a big fan of getting sunshine every single day. Uh, I'm blessed to live in Miami where there's a lot of sun here. You would say that getting adequate sunshine helps with this process based off of what you
1: shared. Definitely. Yeah. So lots of people, you know, um, there's all this talk about vitamin D and that's you know important. We definitely get that from the sun, but there's interesting studies that would show that um, the the benefits of, like when they were looking at the benefits of um, sunlight to cardiovascular disease, they were like, oh, it's got to be the vitamin D. So they supplement with vitamin D and they didn't see the same benefits. It's because not all the benefits are from vitamin D. They got to think about like, we've been so caught up in like the the biochemical side of the body, which again is important, but there's this whole, I call it like the physics side of us that we need to pay attention to as well. Are, are we in the right physical environment that's gonna um, give everybody the right stimuli to, to to stay healthy? And one of those things is, is sunlight. So you've
0: seen, you've seen association studies that show those who are in areas that don't get much sun have higher incidences of uh, heart disease?
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm.
0: Huh. Yeah, I was thinking of that when you were sharing about the sun. Great. and then. Something I learned, I'm not sure if if you're familiar with this, I interviewed an anti-aging doctor, Dr. Sandra Kaufman, who wrote the Kaufman Protocol. She's actually based out of uh, South Florida. She shared with me from her research that astaxanthin um, is like edible sunscreen preventing you from, from getting burned from the sun, meaning you could be out there even longer and get these benefits without the negative consequences of getting burned. So have you ever looked into that or heard about that before, the astaxanthin component?
1: I've heard about these things and I've heard like uh, like that and just like in general, like antioxidant type things in general, you know, like, cause the, the, the damage that comes from the sun is when, you know, the, the antioxidant properties of our body get overwhelmed because there's too much damage coming in and they can't, um, they can't counteract it. And then that's when we burn. So you're more resistant to burning if you have higher, or if you have more of that stuff around to counteract the damaging effects of the sun. And I mean that sounds like a great theory, and I and I and I it it sounds pretty good. I, I haven't really seen anything to fully back it up, like uh, biochemically. But I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case.
0: Yeah, I, anecdotally, I've seen that with taking it versus not, and also giving to some clients and then them seeing some results. But yeah, nothing really concrete scientifically. But it's it's fascinating thought. So. Those who are putting sun, toxic sunscreen on, they're wearing sunglasses. You're not going to get the benefits we're talking about here. Get the natural sun, and if you can't, I have a big four panels right here of red light therapy. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Because in our modern world, we can't always do the. I, I don't expect everybody to go live out in the woods again. You know, um, that's not that's not realistic within our modern world. So there are things we can do, uh, like the red light therapy or infrared saunas and that kind of stuff that can help us kind of get our body in that right physical environment a little bit better.
0: Great. Yeah. I'm a big fan of red light therapy. I do it daily along with sunshine, even overcast days. You'll still get benefits even if it's overcast when you're outside, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't get that, especially those in London, you could still get benefits. (laughs) One of the most common questions I've been asked over the years is, can I have green juice on the ketogenic diet? My answer was always, uh, probably not. Most juices out there don't really source the right vegetables, and it creates a glucose spike, which will knock you out of ketosis. It wasn't until recently that I discovered Farmer's Juice. Now, Farmer's Juice delivers keto-friendly juices that are organic, delicious, and full of functional ingredients. Most juices out there are not good. They have more sugar than a can of soda, They use low-quality produce from industrial farms, and they cost like $12 a bottle, which just make you hungrier than before and knock you out of ketosis. Green juice is a good concept, but the execution has been flawed. That's why I'm super excited to share with you the world's first keto-friendly functional green juice line called Farmer's Juice. Farmer's Juice was founded by my friend Junaid, who was on the Keto Camp podcast, and they focus on regenerative farming, which is the main reason why I love them. But if you look at their ingredients, high quality, they have focus greens, performance greens, digestive greens, peaceful greens, green athletics, and other flavors. And I've tested with a CGM. I've tested with my Keto Mojo. It does not kick you out of ketosis. Each Farmer's Juice bottle has one to one and a half pounds of organic produce like cucumber, romaine, lettuce, celery, basil, mint, fennel, purple cabbage, ginger, turmeric, cilantro, and more. That's enough produce to give your diet a serious upgrade and to reduce inflammation, burn fat, and feel like a keto rock star. I love this company so much that they are officially a sponsor of the Keto Camp Podcast. I encourage you to go to thefarmersjuice.com to check out their amazing green juices. I am personally on a monthly subscription and I'm about to get my mom on a monthly subscription. She just doesn't know yet, I'm gonna surprise her with it. So head to thefarmersjuice.com, learn more about it, add into your cart, they also have delicious shots that could upgrade your immune system instantaneously. We will also drop a link down below in the podcast notes. Head to thefarmersjuice.com, And use the coupon code KETOCAMP at checkout for $10 off your order. That is thefarmersjuice.com, coupon code KETOCAMP, no space in between, camp with a K. As we wrap up here, we have a few more minutes. I do want to discuss the role of industrial seed oils, vegetable oils, and heart disease and ask you this question. What do you think is worse and will cause heart disease faster eating a high-carbohydrate diet, so having elevated insulin and glucose, or eating vegetable oils that are these processed fats every single day? Which one will get you to heart disease faster?
1: I think the vegetable oils, definitely. Yeah. yeah because, Why? Because when you burn, like when your body uses primarily polyunsaturated fats for fuel source, like within the mitochondria, it's in the cell and in the mitochondria, it actually kind of like like derails the metabolism. In a way that ultimately causes insulin resistance, and that's a much quicker path than have your body having to deal with just you know ups and downs in blood sugars. You know, I don't know. I think the jury is still out whether or not if you if you completely eliminated vegetable oils and you just ate this you know processed carbohydrate diet, I would wonder how long it would take before we saw like the same repercussions we would if we were eating the vegetable oils too. Because in my opinion, the vegetable oils are like lighting the fire. And then the processed carbohydrates is just adding more fuel, like kindling to the fire. So it'd be interesting to see like studies where you you flush those out and to see like, you know, what was more damaging and how long it took one to be as damaging as the other. But yeah, so when we burn those polyunsaturated fats, primarily those, because, you know, red meat has polyunsaturated fat in it too. Like, it's not like polyunsaturated fat is a bad thing. It's just that the, the amounts we're eating it is a really big problem because we're supposed to have the right ratios and the ratio is totally off. And so when you when you burn those, it breaks your metabolism. It damages the certain intermediates in the Krebs cycle, and then it leads to actually lower oxidative stress, which sounds like a good thing, like right there in the mitochondria, but that's actually the wrong signaling because free radicals are signaling molecules and they're supposed to tell your, your cells certain things like when to stop burning fuel. And if you break that, you don't get that signal in because there's not enough oxidative stress being produced to send that signal for it to shut down. It just keeps happening and keeps happening and keeps happening. And pretty soon the cell's overwhelmed. You're getting signals across the whole body to be um, resistant to insulin. And it's just a disaster. Um, And that's exactly what's happening for people in today's world.
0: Yeah, they are ubiquitous. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I always say Look, if you're having high carbohydrates and getting those glucose spikes and insulin spikes, if you're active, you could burn that off, right? But if you're taking these vegetable oils, these PUFAs in, in high amounts, uh, you're not going to be able to burn that off as efficiently as the glucose. It's just going to really create a lot of uh, inflammation. Dr. K. Shanahan always says, PUFAs go poof," right? The amount of oxygen it attracts, it just creates problems with the double bonds. I, I was interviewing Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Are you familiar with this work? Yeah. Yeah, this morning for my I'm doing a keto challenge and I knew because he's the insulin guy, of course, he's looking at a lot of research Mm -hmm. with glucose. So I wanted to kind of be, I didn't want to debate him because I love Dr. Bickman, but I wanted to bring a different perspective. So I said to Dr. Bickman, and this is a hypothetical, so it's kind of hard to kind of get the exact science here. But I said, Dr. Bickman, I told the challenge members in my keto challenge that I would rather you eat a high carbohydrate diet with very low vegetable oils then a ketogenic diet with a lot of vegetable oils. And I said, would you agree with that or would you think that's the wrong way of thinking? And he said, well, if you put it that way, hypothetically, I would agree with you. And then he went into kind of what you explained, the peroxidation and the pathways and mm-hmm. how it could lead to insulin resistance. So a lot of people are not aware uh, in the keto space. I know we are. But in the keto space, even educators in keto, they're teaching keto, but they're teaching it the wrong way. And I want you to kind of just drill it one one last time. Like how important is it for us to minimize these these bad fats and what are some better alternatives
1: for them? Yeah, I mean, that was, I think, one of the big issues with the Atkins diet. You know, it was successful for a lot of people, but it allowed vegetables because they were low carb, you know? And so, but it it created a lot of issues for people. But yeah, it's incredible. I mean, when you think about it, you know, these these seed oils, I don't know why they're called vegetable oils, these seed oils, you know, around, you know, early 1900s, they first, you know, became uh, part of the food supply and they just like infiltrated every single aspect of the food supply. And we see the trends and it's not the only thing, but we see the trend because this is an association like of heart disease during that time started to increase. And by the 1950s, everybody was freaking out about it and didn't know what to do. And and then Ansel Keys gave us an answer of it was cholesterol and saturated fat, which was the wrong answer. But when you look at the trends, when we started eating higher amounts of polyunsaturated fats, heart disease, obesity, diabetes just skyrocketed. So that was it. again not the only thing, but a major player, um, and the evidence is is right there. So we got to get those out of our diet. And so the way we do that is, you know, if you're if you're eating at home and you're not using vegetable oils, then You're doing good, you know, but it's eating out or eating any kind of packaged or processed food, like it's gonna have vegetable, and it's almost guaranteed.
0: So how do you how do you handle the restaurants? What do you do with the waiters and waitresses personally?
1: You ask them, you know. I mean, I don't really order many processed things from from a restaurant, but if I go and I get a steak or something, I say, "What was this cooked in? How did you cook this? How did you prepare this?" Uh, and that kind of stuff. And sometimes get good answers, sometimes I get bad answers. And uh, sometimes I end up fasting, but uh, <laughs> you know what I do,
0: I, Stephen. I tell them when they, if they say it's like a soybean oil or something bad, I say uh, I'm allergic to that. Do you do you have butter or coconut oil or even olive oil? And they usually do, or all yeah. fast like you.
1: <laughs> you see, my question would be like when they go back to tell them that does the does the cook go and clean off the whatever they're cooking on, or do they just throw some butter on there on top of all the soybean oil cooking in that? Like I don't know. Um, but, in, but, I guess, but but
0: if they didn't, I mean. In small amounts, if you're doing so many things right, it shouldn't be right. detrimental in, in, in theory, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, we don't need to be that scared of it to where you're, you're going to that extreme. You know, if you're eating out once a week or something and they cook some cooking in some butter, but there's also a little soil, like that's not going to kill you, you know, uh, tomorrow. So you have to live your life. You have to enjoy your life too. That's very important. Do the best you can. As long as you're doing the best you can, like that's all you can do, right? But then like, you know, People also have to be careful too, because they think, you know, oh, I'm buying olive oil or avocado oil, but that stuff has been shown to be heavily contaminated with vegetable oil um, or seed oils. And there was one study that even showed that I think some brands of avocado oil have almost 100% canola oil in them. It's just false advertising. So I don't know how they're allowed to get away with that. Um, so you got to be careful with those things too. Make sure you do your research if you if you consume those foods that you're getting a brand that's, that's being truthful. And then, you know, you know, replace those oils with, with uh, good healthy animal fats like butter and and ghee and tallow and lard and and what have you.
0: Lard, look at that. I talk about it and people are like, "What? This guy's crazy." What do you mean, lard? Yes, lard. <laughs> stable. We're looking for the stability of the fats. You have three big kind of. Uh, keys for for achieving health. You you mentioned metabolic flexibility, healthy metabolism, which is what we should really be speaking about when we talk about the coronavirus anyways. (laughs) Reducing oxidative stress and inflammation, you talked about it, but there was one thing we didn't talk about, balancing the autonomic nervous system. If you could explain what exactly that is, and then relate that to what you shared in your book about mammals and reptiles and how we have uh, the difference in those uh, nervous systems.
1: Yeah. So, this is a really big point of mine because, you know, oftentimes the, the conversation heart disease is, is dominated by diet and inflammation and that kind of stuff. But, um, and you know, this is part of that as well. But I think that I, the more and more I learn, I think that imbalance in the autonomic nervous system is actually a bigger driver of heart disease. And so when my people say like, oh, his diet gave him heart disease, I don't believe it for a second, because that's only one little part of it. And there's so many other things. And this is one of them. So the autonomic nervous system is the system our body uses to interpret the environment and give our body signals if we're in a safe or threatening environment. So, should we have a stressful response, like to get away from a threat, uh, like run away or fight it off, or should we? Or are we safe, and we can our body can focus on digesting and detoxification and things like that, sleeping? And so, you know, based on what signals we're getting, it's going to give us the appropriate response. However, our stress response evolves in a certain way, which I'll talk about in a minute but our environment changed so rapidly that there's no way that it could have evolved to this new environment that we have. This, I would say high demand, unnatural stressor environment of the human beings have kind of created for themselves. And so what that often leads to is we get stuck in this stress state. It's almost like your body's constantly getting signals to have this um, stress response, like we're we're constantly in a, um, a, um, a threatening situation. And so That's problematic. And one of the biggest reasons that happens is because humans are the only species on the planet that can literally think their way into a stress response. We can overthink something, we can see something happen to somebody else across the world, and fear it's going to happen to us, we can have something bad happen to us. And instead of, you know, forgetting about it in a day or two, like lots of animals do, we think about it for months or even years. And these types of things can lead to us thinking our way into the stress response. And The reason I think that's really important, I mean, everybody talks about how like stress and heart disease is is definitely related, but it's just kind of like this this afterthought thing. It's like, oh, yeah, I manage your stress, you know? But I think it needs to be the forefront because of how the stress response evolved in mammals. So in reptiles, when we talk about the vagus nerve, which the vagus nerve is the nerve that communicates these signals and tells your body which, you know, which um, state to be in the stress or non stress state. And, um, when we talk about reptiles, they have this one pathway of the vagus nerve. It's called the dorsal motor nucleus, and uh, it basically that's their that's their stress signaling response. And if they have a stress response that is, um, I guess, too overwhelming, they actually literally their body can actually shut down organs because they're so they're so much less metabolically active than mammals. If you think about reptiles, they're slower moving, they're cold blooded. They just don't have this high metabolism that mammals do. So in order for mammals to evolve from reptiles, which they did eventually, there had to be this split in the vagus nerve. So there's still that older dorsal motor nucleus there, but there's also this nucleus ambiguous. There's two parts, two pathways in the vagus nerve. And what that allows for is it allows for mammals to have this stressful response without an organ shutdown like the reptiles have. Because they're out, the reptiles could have that And since they're so so much less metabolically active their organs won't die or anything whereas if mammals had that shutdown response um, they require so much more atp and maintain this body temperature that that they would not be a good situation for different organs or the body as a whole and so in order to have that stress response you know we needed this dual pathway that can kind of prevent that shutdown pathway from happening however there are situations and this is what i talk about when i when i talk about how um, our physiology like our, our environment change so rapidly, our stress state environment changed so rapidly, there's no way that our our stress response physiology could adapt to that change. And so there is situations where we can get stuck in this stress state, and it can have a profound effect on our metabolism, on our organs. And ultimately, what I talk about in the book is how it can lead to what I call shifts in metabolism, metabolic heart attacks um, that happen where there's no blockage whatsoever in a, in a coronary artery, but we still get tissue death and which happens way more frequently than people think. I can't tell you the number of people that have reached out to me and said, yeah, I had a heart attack and and they never found a blockage and they couldn't tell me why it happened. And I believe that you know my theory is, is that this is the kind of things that happens and it has to do with imbalances in our stress response.
0: Mm, so fascinating. Another reason why we wanna master our stress, turn off the news, open up a book, do things that are going to uh, activate oxytocin and you know, dopamine, not too much dopamine, but oxytocin. You're, we want to stay out of this stress response because you're so right. And stress comes in three areas, the mental, emotional, which you spoke about, physical, and then of course, um, chemical toxicity wise. So we want to look at all three areas and focus on reducing that because it will lead to issues. I mean, Dr. Bruce Lipton has shown that your thoughts create a frequency that penetrate your membrane, tell your DNA to produce a specific protein. And it could be an inflammatory protein with a bad thought, or it could be a healthy protein with a positive thought. And we have that power. It's our greatest power, I always say, the ability to choose your thoughts. So well said, Stephen. Where is the best place to go check you out, get your book, learn about you on social media?
1: Um, My my, uh, website is resourceyourhealth.com. Um, that's where my blog's on there, my my books are available. That's where I do my health coaching. the The heart book is not available right now um, because I got picked up by a publisher. Oh, sweet, congrats. Thanks. And so we're working to you know make changes and uh, and improvements on it to get it republished to the publisher. So I'm hoping by early next year, you'll be out, but we'll see. So yeah, the best way to kind of get updated on that process is to follow me on social media, which is uh DR Stephen Hussey on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And if you if you do that, then you'll be notified of the the uh the timeline for when that's gonna be out again. But I also have another book called The Health Evolution that is available right now.
0: And that's on Amazon? Yes. The other one. Okay, we'll put that down below. That's exciting. Congrats on the publisher, man. Well deserved. Well Thank deserved. Uh, it's gonna bless even more lives when it when it's repackaged. You're amazing. I love the work that you're doing. I I learned so much from you from your work prior to the interview. And then, of course, on the interview, thank you for speaking the truth about the heart and about red meat and about the nervous system and just all your years of research. I personally appreciate it. And I know my audience does as well. So I look forward to having more conversations with you and doing more discussions to hear about your research. And I want
1: to thank you for coming on the show, Steven. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sounds like you're doing awesome things. So I'm happy to be a part of it.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Stephen Hussey. I'm going to put links for his books in the podcast notes. We also have everything mentioned can be found in the podcast notes, timestamps, notes, resources, everything is down there for you. We do a really good job with our show notes. so Go check that out. We're also going to put his social media on there, his website on there if you want to reach out to him. Share this episode with a friend, somebody you know who is afraid of getting heart disease, or maybe they have been diagnosed with heart disease, this conversation can make a big difference in their life. So copy the link, post it in a text message, or post it on your social media. Let's get the message out there. If you got any value from this conversation, please consider leaving the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference for the show. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. You might wanna to listen to this episode another time if we went deep. I'm personally gonna to listen to it again as well. We have on Monday, September 20th, our next episode will be with Dr. Amy Horniman to talk all about thyroid health. You don't wanna miss that. Go check it out when we release that on Monday. And if you've missed any previous episodes, we have over 300 episodes. Go back into our catalog and listen to them this weekend as you enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the KetoCamp podcast. Hey, I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice.